The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Some of you know that uh, there's been a big change uh, in regards to the community just in the last couple of weeks. On Friday the 25th, Common Ground purchased a retreat property about uh, 80 miles east of here the beautiful rolling countryside north of Menominee, Wisconsin. It's a very simple property that we'll be developing hopefully over the years, making it more available to the community for individual retreats and small groups. People like the people in this room to go on small groups and practice together and we'll do some programs out there. And maybe if things unfold in a certain way, we'll eventually have a more full-fledged retreat center there. But whether that bigger vision ever manifests immediately, starting in the spring, it will be available for people to use for retreat practice, just to get off the country. It's really a sweet, uh, quiet part of uh, western Wisconsin, so we're really happy to have that. We'll have an open house there on the 23rd of November, the Saturday before Thanksgiving. So hopefully a number of you would like to come out there and see the new property and walk the land. We'll have a set there and then we have a nice building on the property. And uh, and then we'll talk for an hour or so about the plants so you can learn a little bit more and how it might start being used in the months ahead. So if you free that Saturday, I'll put it in the calendar. And if you're on the weekly email list, you'll get more information about carpooling out there. Um, so we're going to start at 1230, which means we could be being here at 11, and people will just join in carpool so that we don't have to pick up more cars than we need. So we're finishing another turning point. We're finishing Akhya Chathkop tonight. Some of you have been reading along. Most of you probably haven't. But it's a great book, and I've been giving talks from this book now for over a year. Who for the Heart, Ajahn Chah is this great Thai meditation master, Buddhist monk, who died in the early 90s. And has made quite an impact here in the Western Buddhist scene as Buddhism has come to the West over the last several decades. And this last chapter is titled Toward the Unconditioned. This is what I talked about last week. I want to finish up talking about this chapter this week. So last week I mentioned that this movement toward the unconditioned, this is a great alchemy and the teachings of the Buddha. Alchemy is a way of transforming something. So this is a provocative term, the unconditioned. By unconditioned we mean not what's conditioned. And what we know is the condition. Our mind, our thinking mind, that's conditioned. Sensations, sounds, sights. Basically, everything we know is conditioned. So it's sort of, well, what do we mean for the unconditioned? So it, this practice that the Buddha laid out, you know, from his own experience, he then articulated his process of waking up, seeing things more clearly. And so now we're hearing these instructions, and he has this very particular methodology. And at first it may seem paradoxical, but it makes so much sense. So if you're interested in the freedom of the unconditioned, the pathway isn't to try to get to the unconditioned, because that's just conditioned activity. I want to get someplace nice, where there aren't any problems in my life. 
the same way we bump up our, bump our head, you know, by trying to control it, he saw that it didn't work. Trying to escape it, he saw that it doesn't work. So we found this middle way. So the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, all are all about this middle way. So that the freedom of the unconditioned doesn't arise to trying to control the conditions of our lives, also does not arise by trying to escape our conditioned reality. If only I didn't have to deal with everything, then I would be happy. That's why people like to run away, you know, to the North Shore or to, you know, whatever we run away from, thinking that that will be better. He said that, that the way, the middle way, is this process really built or uh, arising out of the development of mindfulness. So it is a more thorough, full opening to the conditions of the mind and body, to the conditions of our lives, that reveals the unconditioned. You see how paradoxical that is? Just the opposite of escape, running away. Just the opposite of control. Because we're, in order to open, we have to be willing to be undefended. In order to see clearly, we have to stop judging for a moment. Because judging distorts the mind. How can we experience something clearly when we're judging it, or afraid of it, or feeling in need of it. You can't. The neediness, the fear, the aversion distorts the opening. Now, this is a little bit, because it's counterintuitive, or counter our conditioning, I should say, it's not easy to do. So we generally practice with relatively simple experiences. Instead of like, okay, I'm going to go to work, and instead of struggling with the conditions of my work and the conditions of my mind at work, I'm going to realize the unconditioned, the unconditioned, full, unshakable release of the heart by just allowing everything to be. It just won't happen. You know, we it will be some imitation of what we think and that looks like, just letting everything be. So we have to practice where it's relatively simple. Sitting in a place in a comfortable way, just noticing the sensations in the body, noticing the breathing in the body, notice the normal thinking activity that arises because of whatever's been said emotion from before. So in that relatively simple environment, we can practice opening to the conditions of the present moment, the mind-body conditions of the present moment, in a more thorough, full, non-judging, non-controlling, non-denying way, in a clear, relaxed way. And we might find, like the Buddha suggests, that the heart, the mind, begins to experience a lot of space, a lot of freedom, a lot of lightness, a lot of natural love, unbounded love, like not I love you, not that kind of love, but a kind of intimacy or affection for all things equally as if everything's beautiful and blessed, even what is not pretty is also beautiful and blessed, or belongs to be included. I'm sure you've bumped up at times with experiences that are at least in that direction, that just felt the mind, the heart, the body, felt, felt this lightness, this ease, 
this quality of profound intimacy and presence, or however you might describe it in your words, we do bump up against this, or bump up, or open up, I should say, to these kinds of experiences from time to time, almost accidentally, but we don't necessarily understand what's happening, don't understand how to sort of move, live into it, so that it becomes more the way we are in the world. And very quickly then we tend to fall back into our normal ways of struggling and resisting and denying and wanting things to be this way or that way, thinking that that will lead to real happiness. Even though we had that taste of a, a more effortless, natural freedom, it came when the mind, see this is the piece we miss, is the cause. The heart was just at that moment radically open, unattended, clearly aware, but not resisting or controlling or judging or not struggling. So we need moments, we need lots of little moments of realizing this in relatively simple situations, like when we're formally meditating in the morning, let's say. The idea of formal meditation or, you know, like the retreat center, the retreat property, I should say, that the community that all of us just bought, of course, that case suggests the only money we have is the money people give us. And then, uh, so that we didn't get a mortgage on that property, it was just the donations that people gave for that retreat property. So now we've got this quiet place, you know, it's a relatively simple place, and the idea of the leaders who are going to be organizing the space, you know, you just keep it simple, just in the same way we do with our morning sit. You know, we don't take our morning sit to a complicated place, we find a quiet place that's not provocative, you know, that's simple and maybe beautiful in different ways where we can sit comfortably. If we lie down, we tend to be sleepy if we're moving about, tends to agitate the mind. So sitting is, you know, not the only posture to meditate in, but for most people, most of the time, it's the, uh, the posture that will be simplest to practice from. That's why we use it as a sort of formal practice ritual, the sitting posture. And then we're really learning, like we're checking out basically the Buddha's teaching that is there a way to move toward the unconditioned? And we learn by our mistakes, we try to move towards freedom by controlling our body. Have you ever noticed that in your sins? You know, all the big and subtle adjustments. You can spend, you can sit for an hour and a half, and all you do is suddenly adjust your posture, looking for the perfect posture. I know because I've done this many, many times. It takes it a long time, nudging, working, struggling with your posture. And you can do even longer time working with your mind, right? Well, finally get my mind together. You know, it's too dull, it's too restless, it's too neurotic, it's too lustful, it's too aversive and impatient. And we're just, we're in that mode thinking that my salvation, my happiness will come, I just got the, the bodies act together and then my mind's going to act together. And then the thing is, it never ends if I gotta get all of your acts together, because you bother me too. <laughs> or whether I gotta get his act together, it doesn't really end, right? So that's what the Buddha says, don't fall into that trap. Or 
if you do fall into that trap, let it be a teacher. That's not the way. That's what it teaches us. So don't worry how many times your mind gets distracted. Just let it be a teacher. So at the end, of the mind finally wakes up to the fact that it's been distracted. Then take a few moments and let the lesson sink in. This is not the way to happiness. Worrying about this, planning that, comparing me to this other person, wondering, fantasizing, that activity of mine is not leading to happiness. I have directly realized that. That's an insight. To see that in that little way, to see that that doesn't lead to anything but tightness and entanglement. Okay, it's good to know. One more time, I've learned that lesson. How many times do we need to learn it? Well, just think of it, about how many times we had to learn so many theories uh, uh, around addiction, like whatever our addiction was. You, know, you have to see it over and over and over and over again until the mind is like that cumulative information where the mind finally gets, this isn't even happiness. This is stressful. Maybe I won't do this again. We kind of know it for a long time, but we really know it. Well, you have to keep seeing it. And a lot of times we're in denial. So we have to see it with clarity. So a lot of our sitting meditation is seeing how our struggling with the conditions or trying to run away from conditions, the circumstances of the moment, doesn't lead to freedom. It just leads to complications and stress. So then we start learning, you know, there's that feedback that comes from seeing that so many times. And there we are sitting with the sensations of the body, or we're sitting with the movement of the breath of the body. And we were remembering the teachings of the Buddha, and we're remembering directly what we've learned from our experience of struggling and control and denial of health. So then we're using the breath moving in the body, and we're just going to check out, okay, let me allow a natural intimacy, a natural interest, a natural non-judging presence with the breath and the body. Knowing the breath without any gaps, I just really there, tracking, knowing, and then there with the outbreath. And to sustain that, we're just getting a sense of this, what Ajahn calls or titled this chapter, the movement toward the unconditioned. It's not like uh, we should think of nirvana or freedom or all these sort of words we use pointing towards the culmination of spiritual practice as something like way out there. We really want to understand it in a very immediate way as a movement towards stress or a movement uh, toward the release of stress. And this is something that can be directly realized in the mind, in the body, in the heart, right here and now. Otherwise, in our spiritual practice, we're literally driving blindly. We just, how would we know whether to trust the instructions of the Buddha or our teacher if we can't directly check it out and see that oh, when I direct my mind in this way, when I cultivate non-harming, when I cultivate calm, when I cultivate this perspective of not taking things personally, I directly see how this mind-body thing I call my life moves in the direction of ease, lightness, love. And when I don't, and I, my body, mind, heart, you know, moves in the direction of struggling, control, denial, I see directly, you know, that it's all tight and entangled and heavy and unworkable and less functional. 
myself and others more often. So we want to be grounding what we're learning, what we're hearing, in that direct way. Because what arises out of that is a lot of confidence that, okay, I'm beginning to understand the lay of the land. I'm beginning to understand how it works. I'm not a helpless human being, sort of susceptible to have somebody selling me a bill of goods. You know, the next jazzy spiritual book that comes out, or the next jazzy spiritual center that comes out. Because, as the Buddha would say, we're becoming slowly independent in our practice. Meaning that how we understand the path is less and less about what someone tells me the path is, and more and more coming from having observed directly in the experience of our mind how it is that the mind goes towards stress, complications, weight, struggle, and how it is that the mind unfolds in the direction of the release of those complications and stress. And then as we hear more instructions from like the Buddha, then it's like, oh yeah, I see that, I know that. It's like, it's so we're so grateful, it's so nice to know that other people might direct experience matches up, aligns with all these other people. It's like, I'm not alone. This is something that human beings have traversed throughout the ages, working with the human mind. And it's tendency that, that shooting that second dart, second arrow, you know, where our response to the limitations of the conditions of this moment is to layer on more struggle more reaction, more resistance. And it really breaks our heart wide open when we see how strong that tendency is in ourselves and in others. It's like, oh, the last thing we want to do is live in a way that reinforces that tendency in ourselves or in others, like modeling it for other people. Like where when we're struggling, when the conditions, which they are sometimes, of our present moment, you know, experiencing loss, experiencing pain in the body, experiencing disappointment or shame, these things will arise, but what do we do about them? Do we react or struggle to control them or struggle to deny them? In which case we're modeling for everybody else and directly experiencing ourselves the pain of being in denial or the pain of struggling, trying to control what can't be controlled. Or we can relate with wisdom, which is to open. It doesn't mean to be passive, it means to open, to be unafraid of the conditions in the moment. And to let our response to those conditions in the moment come from that profound openness, fearlessness, trusting in the conditions. We're still going to respond, but now we're responding from fearlessness instead of responding from denial or fear, which is more of the tendency, of course. Ajahn Chah says, as long as the mind is held down by clinging, there is no escape. There is confusion, birth, old age, sickness, and death, even in the thinking process. This kind of mind is called the conditioned mind. So by definition, the conditioned mind, the mind that is involved in struggling or denial in one way or another, 
is the mind that doesn't understand the conditions. So, this is why the Buddha names ignorance as the sole problem. There's only one problem, one evil. You, know, you want to know what the evil doer is, what well, isn't the person or a thing even, it's this process of, of struggling or clinging that the mind engages in out of habit. And it's distorting. So when the mind is struggling or clinging or being attached, it can't see clearly. What can it see clearly? Well, the only thing there is are these conditions that are present moment, or the conditions of the mind and body. When they're not seen clearly, then we'll never understand the uh, sort of unfortunate, avoidable suffering of struggle. You know, that attachment is unproductive. So it just perpetuates itself. The habit of getting attached, of struggling, of clinging is never seen clearly because the clinging itself is distorted. So this is the chicken and egg. So how do we break that cycle? In Buddhism we call that cycle samsara. How we tend to repeat cycles of suffering. So we break it by changing the underlying catalyst for samsara, for the cycle of distress, which is not seen clearly. That's the cause. So then we understand what the practice is. the practice is seen clearly. That's the word vipassana. Some of you know, this is a vipassana meditation center. So as Theravada Buddhism, Buddhism in places like Thailand and Burma, Sri Lanka, Laos and Cambodia, when it came here to the West, it still gets called Theravada Buddhism. But often the centers refer to themselves as insight meditation or vipassana meditation centers, really emphasizing this particular piece of the Buddhist teachings, that if we want to break the cycle of reactivity and clinging, grasping and struggling, the missing ingredient is seeing clearly. Because when we see clearly, what do we see clearly? Well, we see clearly that struggling, resisting with, resisting that which is already happening, is quite literally insane. Like, if I've done something stupid and I feel a lot of shame, you know, embarrassment, and then, out of habit, the way my mind's conditioned, I hate that experience of being embarrassed. And so I get tight, both in my mind and body, right? Because that's what we do when we hate something, we get tight. Now, if there's a moment of mindfulness, or even better, several moments of sustained mindfulness. What will be known in that in those moments of mindfulness is how unproductive creating the shame is. There is already that painful emotion of shame. It's already here. In the body mind, right? Sort of thing, right here. But any resistance, any struggle to deny it or control it or to blame somebody for it, it's completely unnecessary. It's literally insane. But because the mind is attached or identified with the shame and with the hating of the shame, it's blind. It doesn't see how getting tight around the experience, the painful experience of embarrassment, is completely unproductive. And we'll, we'll do it forever, you know, over and over and over again, because there's a missing ingredient. The mind is not seeing what's happening, because the mind is identified with the process. So I've been 
Chop talks about this in the chapter that the uh, by definition, when we say the conditioned mind or the ignorant mind, or you would call it a normal mind, I mean a normal worldly mind, by definition is the mind that isn't understanding the conditions. And it's not understanding the conditions of the present moment because it's entangled with it through the process of attachment, or what we call clinging or grasping. The mind is grasping or struggling or attached to the conditions of what's arising in the present moment. And so it's entangled. Because of that entanglement, it can't see clearly. Because it can't see clearly, it doesn't realize what to let go of. Not letting go, it continues to be entangled. Because the pain of the entanglement itself causes more struggle. So now I not only have the pain of feeling ashamed, I have the pain of hating the shame. And I react to that pain too. And then you see how it goes, it just never ends. There's always one thing, until we're so exhausted, you know, we turn the TV on, we just get lost in that for a while, or we do something, you know, worry about something else. Have you noticed that when we're really obsessed in a painful way about something, it eventually gets so much, we want, we just desperately want something, but because the mind has a particular sense like we have a taste in our mouth, we look for the same thing. You know, we've been eating salty Doritos, then we want salty peanuts. We've been obsessing about how bad we are, and we think about another way we're bad. Sort of, we stay in the same frequency for a while. It's really, you know, if we could only step back and observe these cycles of stress and entanglement and struggling in a very um, simple, objective way, it would really break our heart wide open. And we would be so committed to being mindful. Not in a judgmental way. Remember, mindfulness is not judgmental. It's just this deep commitment to the truth. I just want to see the way it is. I just want to see how it is. I'm interested in the truth because I have been burnt so long by thinking not seeing clearly is going to get me out of this mess. Buddha has very provocative images. He said once, We've shed more tears than there is water in the four great oceans in these rounds of suffering, being confused by the suffering, not awake, and therefore struggling in unproductive ways, causing more suffering, and on and on. And we're not just causing suffering for ourselves, but like I said earlier, we're modeling it for everybody else. And we're being affected by everybody else's modeling. Have you noticed that? When somebody's in a really reactive place, we tend to be go to work and somebody's like so excited about the newest thing, well, we sort of start feeling like, I need that new thing too. You know, they're going to get it. Somebody falls in love and they find a perfect partner. We wonder if we should find a better partner. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody, you know, breaks up a good partner. We think, well, maybe, you know, it's fun. <laughs> We get, we're, we're sort of uh, sympathetically vibrating with everybody else around us. And of course, we're in a society where there is a lot of aversion and a lot of greed, and we're affected by that. And it's so wonderful to run into somebody who, in that moment at least, has a real grounding and contentedness. You know? It's like they're happy in their skin. It's not that their life is perfect, it's not that they lack imagination and they can't imagine 
how it could be better. But they're okay with the way it is. They're appreciating their life as it is, with all the blemishes or imperfections. That's it's really nice to be around those people. And people who don't immediately get angry when things are difficult. Instead, they see it like they see the naturalness. Oh, yeah, sometimes it's like this. Sometimes we're around people who are having a hard day and they act it out in traffic, at the cashier register, the cash register. You know, sometimes it's just like this. I've been like that. I understand. You know, so they're not personalizing the pain that they run into, the difficulties that they run into. They're seeing it as part of a natural, inevitable unfolding. Now, sometimes it's really pleasant, and sometimes it's really unpleasant. I don't expect life to only be pleasant. I expect it to be sometimes pleasant, and sometimes beautiful, and sometimes unpleasant. And I also expect that I won't know how it's going to be until it is that way. And then I also know that when it is this way, that it's this way lawfully. It's not personal. It's not like somebody's out to get me when these difficult things arise one after another. Because sometimes difficult things arise one after another. And sometimes pleasant things arise one after another. And sometimes it's neutral for a long time and we don't like it. Because it's that things happening. Because what we do is we think about what will alleviate the burning of craving. 
And it's sort of juicy when we think about what will alleviate the burning. But if we just pay attention to the burning, we lose sight of the object of our craving. And then all of a sudden, we realize that the pain of the craving goes away without having to get it. That's so much easier than having to buy the next iPhone or iPad. You know, we just have to be willing to feel the craving so fully that we're not thinking about what we crave, but we're, the craving itself is the object of awareness. That it falls apart, the pain. And so there's nothing, no pain to gratify, no craving to gratify. There's peace. This is a real insight when we see that what we fear and what we crave will evaporate if we're willing to be mindful. We don't actually have to be like, let's say we fear death, let's take up the big one. We fear death, I mean that's just how we're conditioned, it's a scary thing, it's scary, we don't even know what it is. I mean we know, we know some things, like we know that sometimes when people are dying there's a lot of physical pain, but there's a lot of physical pain sometimes when we're not dying too, right? And we just do the best we can with physical pain. Fortunately these days there are a lot of good drugs to help with that. The diet itself, we just don't know what that is. But if, you know, we don't like it, which is itself sort of interesting, like how much aversion there is to something that we actually don't know what it is. Well, we have lots of ideas, but they're just ideas. We don't actually know what that is. And it, the thing is, whenever we have that conditioned fear, you know, the way we've been conditioned to be afraid of death, or to hate it, or whatever your particular conditioning is around that, denial of saying. So whatever your pattern is around that, whenever that arises, you can just look at the, that reactive pattern. Just look at the reactivity, the grasping, the clinging, the struggling itself. Struggling to deny, struggling to control it, struggling to hate it, whatever you're doing. Just look at that, accept it completely. And what will happen is, all of a sudden, there's not a problem anymore. We have to see this, I think, at least tens of thousands of times, if not hundreds of thousands of times. And every time we see how suffering evaporates, the Buddha calls it suffering and the end of suffering. It's really the essence of our practice. We're cultivating mindfulness, a more steady presence, in order to see hundreds of thousands of times the actual experience of suffering and its cessation directly in the heart. So, why not around death? Why not around any kind of thing in our life that is charged with struggle? And instead of dealing with it on a conceptual level, like why I'm afraid of death, why I don't want to die, what I hope death is all about, instead of dealing with it on that level, we go immediately the problem the heart is having right now, the entanglement, the stress, the tightness, the denial, the pain of denial, right here in the heart. We look at that fully, we open to it. We allow it to be just what it is, so fully that we realize something. It never was about the thought, it was about the struggling itself. We can really live this life with a lot of peace, a lot of skill, a lot of love and wisdom, without having 
lives, like the truth about what death is. This is what we think. It's like, I've got to know what it is before I'm going to be happy. I mean, that's what you call a deal with the devil. Like, I'm not going to be happy until I know what death is, or what happens after death. Or it's just like saying, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. It's like a child. I'm going to hold my breath until I get what I want. Well, who suffers? You know, we do. You know, just walking around tight for a whole life because we don't know what death is. Maybe that's okay. Maybe we don't know, need to know whether I should get married or not get married. Or keep this job or leave this job. Or, you know, buy this, an Android phone or an iPhone. Maybe we don't need to know. And we can just, you know, do what we do. But not do what we do because we think this is right. Know that we don't know. Maybe that's okay. That's like in the direction of the unconditioned is realizing that the mind doesn't have to be dependent on the meaning it tends to give to things. Fine, if the mind wants to give meaning to things, fine. I like this. You know, it's not like it's not Buddhist to say, you know, I really prefer, you know, vanilla yogurt to it's not, only, it's not a problem to have preferences as long as we realize it's not, we're not building a self around that. So that's what sometimes the mind says, you know, I like this, I don't like that. But we're not letting that become anything more than just that statement. We're, letting, we're sort of cultivating a freedom of what's unconditioned, unformed. And we're letting the conditioned reality, which includes our personality and everything else that's dancing together, we just let that be what it is. But we're cultivating a harder mind, an understanding that doesn't have a problem with the conditions. I'll just end with this teaching from Shokya Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher that I studied with a while back. He just had a great line that somebody raised a question about something to do with impermanence. And his very simple response was, I don't have a problem with impermanence. Now, this isn't a philosophy, like let's, let's have a call for those who don't have a problem with impermanence. <laughs> and then we'll just sort of chant them, you know, I have a problem with But we don't have to construct the idea that impermanence, the change, the uncertainty, the unreliability, unreliableness of life is a problem. We don't have to go there. It's just what it is. It's always been the way that it is. And we can notice that when we do have an opinion about insecurity, vulnerability, change, you know, we notice that that's life. And then when we don't have a problem with it, we notice that that's life. And that's part of those 100,000 insights. You know, where we see, oh yeah, my mind, my heart is clinging to some, you know, some idea of permanence. Like, I didn't expect. I thought you being nice to me was permanent, and now you did this to me, and that changed, bugs me. You know, you're not nice now, and that's not okay. It's not like, you well, sometimes it's like this, and sometimes it's like this. Sometimes people are nice, and sometimes they're not nice. People respect me, and sometimes they don't respect me. We don't have to charge 
that natural unfolding of our conditions as if it's a personal betrayal or personal insult. And this is that movement toward the unconditioned that Adhichan talks about. We have about seven minutes left, time for some questions, or maybe you have some comments from your own practice you'd like to share with the group. Thanks to mind. inside my bones, like I can feel like breathing, uh, and I can sort of feel the musculature of my body, and so it's, it's as though I were grounded in a way that was, I mean, maybe that's a grasping, like, because you're, I don't know, but it's a physical feeling, and I do struggle a lot with grasping, and it still amazes me that every time I have a certain revolution in the way I experience myself in the world, it comes from my body. It's, it, it just, it's like, oh, my body will grow a different way so that I won't walk the earth grasping. That's how I feel it. I mean, maybe it's my mind that went, I don't, I don't need, I don't need to do that. I don't need to, I don't need. But it might be that a better way of saying what you just said, or another way of saying what you just said is, that your body has been a profound teacher because through the body, your mind has learned how to be with it without grasping. So that you called it like feeling into your bones. It may be your way of articulating this experience when the mind is, has this, um, this integrity where it's relating to the body, but not grasping it, not rejecting it, not judging it, not needing it to be other than what it is. That's that integrity called being mindful, I mean, in the deepest sense. So when we have that relationship with the body, then the mind is directly realizing the state of non-grasping. And then it's easier, once we've learned it with one thing, like with the body, it's like the mind begins to generalize the non-grasping. And it realizes, well, I don't have to grasp around birth and death. I don't have to grasp about around this person having more than me or me being better than this other person. I don't have to grasp around anything. I don't have to struggle with any conditions. So we often have a primary teacher. And the Buddha emphasized mindfulness of the body as one of those primary teachers. What we learn, because the body isn't its own thing. The body is a relationship. It's the mind that knows the body. There's no body without the mind knowing it. So what you're experiencing is the mind knowing the body, and you're experiencing that knowing in a pure way, and it's changing how you are, and you're intuiting that, that your way to freedom will come from this teacher, from understanding how to be with the body without grasping, in a clean, alert, relaxed way, will teach you about everything else in the world. That makes a lot of sense to me. sure how by being with the feeling 
here's the thing, that the freedom from the problem comes from an understanding that the unfolding of the conditions, which includes tragedy and great things happening on a conventional level, that that's just going to be what it's going to be. I'm not saying that we're not participating in that world. I'm just saying that that, that unfolding of that life, you know, what we conventionally call my life, is not in our control. So, as you open to the, the pain of the fear, you're opening to the pain of the fear not because you want to, but because it's what's predominant in that moment. If there was something else predominant, you would open to that. But, so, you're opening to the pain because it's what's right in front in the moment. And so, you have to transform, your, the mind has to transform its relationship to the conditions of the present moment through some training ground. And when something's really predominant, that's your training ground in that moment. When nothing's predominant, you can come back to the breath, the body, and work with your, what we call the anchor, what we normally work with when there's nothing predominant. So you have to work with the fear because it's predominant in that moment. And when you practice opening to it, what you're doing is the mind, in order to open completely to the pain of that fear, the mind has to realize the unconditioned, because it's only the unconditioned that can see the fear as it is. Right? So it's not so much that the opening to the fear it's the realization of the unconditioned. For the heart, the mind is one thing, and the activity of the present moment is another thing. These two can't be exactly separated. They're not really different, but they're not the same thing. And we have the mind has to realize the difference between the unfolding of the conditions, which from a conventional point of view, this is all we know. And it has to realize the unconditioned which is the knowing of the condition. So we have to purify the relationship between the knowing and what's being known. And the only way to do that is to develop a knowing that doesn't involve attachment. And when fears, the thing that's really predominant, unfortunately we have to do it with that thing, which is very painful, the fear, the pain of the fear. I think that's related to that is this whole idea of what do I have control over? Like, what part of this do I have control over? And what part of this do I not have control over? And there's this, this constant second guessing, or you know what I mean? It's part of that fear is I'm not doing enough, I should be doing less, I should be more, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah okay. it's maybe the wrong question. Okay. So instead of asking, what of this do I have control of, and what don't I have control of, it might be better to ask the question, how, when my mind is related in this way, or how might my mind relate that leads to release suffering or stress? How would I relate to things get complicated and stressful? See, that's a better question to ask, because um, what should I control, what can I control? It implies this, it, it, there's all kinds of implications to that question, like that there's somebody who can control things. It just presumes a lot. But instead, let's just ask a more functional question. Because it's all about correlating. Like, when I catch my mind doing what, do I notice a lot of stress arising? When I catch my mind relating in another way, do I notice a lot of release from stress arising? 
then we're not presupposing anything. We're just looking for a correlate, like what way of being uh, leads to release? What way of being leads to tightness? We have to leave it here at static clock. Let's take a few seconds at both the words. And you take a breath together. sense of being part of this great lineage of people, all different types of people who have complicated, busy lives like we do, who somehow came across these teachings and cultivated mindful presence in their lives, became wise in their own ways and then model or share the teachings so that one generation after another we get to be the uh, recipients. So now it's our turn in our busy lives the best we can to cultivate these teachings. Become more wise, more loving, more skillful in life. To realize real happiness and to be caused part of the causes and conditions for other Others to be happy and peaceful in life. So, I mean, this is something. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.